Early in our marriage, my wife Mary and I decided that to the extent possible, we would choose activities that we could attend together. We also wanted to be prudent with our budget. Mary loves music and was undoubtedly concerned that I might overemphasize sporting events. So she negotiated that for all paid events, there would be two musicals, operas, or cultural activities for each paid ball game. <laughs> Initially, I was resistant to the opera component, but over time I changed my mind. I particularly came to enjoy the operas by Giuseppe Verdi. This week will be the 200th anniversary of his birth. In his youth, Verdi was intrigued with the prophet Jeremiah, and in 1842, at the age of 28, he achieved fame with the opera Nabucco, a shortened Italian form of the name Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon. This opera contains concepts drawn from the books of Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Psalms in the Old Testament. The opera includes the conquest of Jerusalem and the captivity and bondage of the Jews. Psalm 137 is the inspiration for Verdi's moving and inspiring chorus of Hebrew slaves. The heading of this psalm in our scriptures is very dramatic. Quote, While in captivity, the Jews wept by the rivers of Babylon because of sorrow they could not bear to sing the songs of Zion. My purpose is to review many forms of bondage and subjugation. I will compare some circumstances of our day with those in the days of Jeremiah before the downfall of Jerusalem. In presenting this voice of warning, I am grateful that most Church members are righteously avoiding the conduct that was so offensive to the Lord in Jeremiah's time. The prophecies and lamentations of Jeremiah are important to Latter-day Saints. Jeremiah and the Jerusalem of his day are the backdrop to the beginning chapters in the Book of Mormon. Jeremiah was a contemporary of the prophet Lehi. The Lord dramatically informed Jeremiah of his foreordination. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Lehi had a different calling, mission, and assignment from the Lord. He was not called in his youth, but in his maturity. Initially, his was a voice of warning, but after faithfully declaring the same message as Jeremiah, the Lord commanded that he should take his family and depart into the wilderness. In doing so, Lehi blessed not only his family, but also all people. During the years before the destruction of Jerusalem, the messages the Lord gave to Jeremiah are haunting. He said, My people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out broken cisterns that can hold no water. Speaking of the calamities to come upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the Lord lamented, For them the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and they are not saved. God intended that men and women would be free to make choices between good and evil. When evil choices become the dominant characteristic of a culture or nation, there are serious consequences both in this life and the life to come. People can become enslaved or put themselves in bondage 
not only to harmful, addictive substances, but also to harmful, addictive philosophies that detract from righteous living. Turning from the worship of the true and living God and worshiping false gods like wealth and fame and engaging in immoral and unrighteous conduct result in bondage in all its insidious manifestations. These include spiritual, physical, and intellectual bondage and sometimes bring destruction. Jeremiah and Lehi also taught that those who are righteous must help the Lord establish His Church and Kingdom and gather scattered Israel. These messages have echoed and been reinforced across the centuries in all dispensations. They are at the heart of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this, the final dispensation. The captivity of the Jews and the scattering of the tribes of Israel, including the ten tribes, are prominent doctrinal factors in the restoration of the gospel. The ten lost tribes made up the northern kingdom of Israel and were carried away captive into Assyria in 721 B.C. They went to the north countries. Our tenth article of faith states, We believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the ten tribes. We also believe that as part of the covenant the Lord made with Abraham, not only the lineage of Abraham would be blessed, but also that all the people of the earth would be blessed. As Elder Russell M. Nelson has stated, the gathering is not a matter of physical location. It is a matter of individual commitment. People can be brought to the knowledge of the Lord without leaving their homelands. Our doctrine is clear. The Lord scattered and afflicted the twelve tribes of Israel because of their unrighteousness and rebellion. However, the Lord also utilized this scattering of His chosen people among the nations of the world to bless those nations. We learn valuable lessons from this tragic period. We should do everything within our power to avoid the sin and rebellion that led to bondage. We also recognize that righteous living is a prerequisite for assisting the Lord in gathering His elect and in the literal gathering of Israel. Bondage, subjugation, addictions, and servitude come in many forms. They can be literal, physical enslavement, but can also be loss or impairment of moral agency that can impede our progress. Jeremiah is clear that unrighteousness and rebellion were the main reasons for the destruction of Jerusalem and captivity in Babylon. Other kinds of bondage are equally destructive of the human spirit. Moral agency can be abused in many ways. I will mention four that are particularly pernicious in today's culture. First, addictions that impair agency, contradict moral beliefs, and destroy good health cause bondage. The impact of drugs and alcohol, immorality, pornography, gambling, financial subjugation, and other afflictions impose on those in bondage and on society a burden of such magnitude that it is almost impossible to quantify. Second, addictions are predilections that, while not inherently evil, can use up our precious allotment of time which could otherwise be used to accomplish virtuous objectives. These can include excessive use of social media, video and digital games, sports, recreation, and many others. How we preserve time for family is one of the most significant issues we face in most cultures. 
At a time when I was the only member of the Church in our law firm, one woman lawyer explained to me how she always felt like a juggler trying to keep three balls in the air at the same time. One ball was her law practice, one was her marriage, and one was her children. She had almost given up on time for herself. She was greatly concerned that one of the balls was always on the ground. I suggested we meet as a group and discuss our priorities. We determined that the primary reason we were working was to support our families. We agreed that making more money wasn't nearly as important as our families, but we recognized that serving our clients to the best of our abilities was essential. The discussion then moved to what we did at work that was not necessary and was inconsistent with leaving time for family. Was there pressure to spend time in the workplace that was not essential? We decided that our goal would be a family-friendly environment for both women and men. Let us be at the forefront in protecting time for family. Third, the most universal subjugation in our day, as it has been throughout history, is ideology or political beliefs that are inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Substituting the philosophies of men for gospel truth can lead us away from the simplicity of the Savior's message. When the Apostle Paul visited Athens, he tried to teach of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of this effort we read in Acts, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. When the crowd realized the simple religious nature of Paul's message, which was not new, they rejected it. This is emblematic of our own day, where gospel truths are often rejected or distorted to make them intellectually more appealing or compatible with current cultural trends and intellectual philosophies. If we are not careful, we can be captured by these trends and place ourselves in intellectual bondage. There are many voices now telling women how to live. They often contradict each other. Of particular concern are philosophies that criticize or diminish respect for women who choose to make the sacrifices necessary to be mothers, teachers, nurturers, or friends to children. A few months ago, our two youngest granddaughters visited us, one each week. I was at home and answered the door. My wife Mary was in another room. In both cases, after a hug, they said almost the same thing. They looked around and then said, I love to be in Grandma's house. Where is Grandma? I didn't say it to them, but I was thinking, isn't this Grandpa's house too? But I realized that when I was a boy, our family went to Grandma's house. The words of a familiar song came into my mind, over the river and through the woods to Grandmother's house we go. Now let me say unequivocally that I am thrilled with the educational and other opportunities that are available to women. I treasure the fact that the backbreaking work and domestic drudgery required of women has been reduced in much of the world because of modern conveniences, and that women are making such magnificent contributions in every field of endeavor. But if we allow our culture to reduce the special relationship that children have with mothers and grandmothers and others who nurture them, we will come to regret it. Fourth, forces that violate sincerely held religious principles can result in bondage. 
One of the most invidious forms is when righteous people who feel accountable to God for their conduct are forced into activities that violate their conscience. For example, health providers forced to choose between assisting with abortions against their consciences or losing their jobs. The Church is a relatively small minority even when linked with people who are like-minded. It will be hard to change society at large, but we must work to improve the moral culture that surrounds us. Latter-day Saints in every country should be good citizens, participate in civic affairs, educate themselves on the issues, and vote. Our primary emphasis, however, should always be to make our necessar- any necessary sacrifices to protect our own family and the rising generation. The vast majority of them are not yet in bondage to serious addictions or false ideologies. We must help inoculate them from a world that sounds a lot like the Jerusalem that Lehi and Jeremiah experienced. In addition, we need to prepare them to make and keep sacred covenants and to be the principal emissaries to help the Lord establish His Church and gather scattered Israel and the Lord's elect everywhere. As the Doctrine and Covenants beautifully reads, The righteous shall be gathered out from among all nations and shall come to Zion singing with songs of everlasting joy. Our challenge is to avoid bondage of any kind. Help the Lord gather His elect and sacrifice for the rising generation. We must always remember that we do not save ourselves. We are liberated by the love, grace, and atoning sacrifice of the Savior. When Lehi's family fled, they were led by the Lord's light. If we are true to His light, follow His commandments, and rely on His merits, we will avoid spiritual, physical, and intellectual bondage, as well as the lamentation of wandering in our own wilderness. For He is mighty to save. Let us avoid the despair and sorrow of those who fall into captivity and can no longer bear to sing the songs of Zion. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My brothers and sisters, my heart is full as we bring to a close this wonderful general conference of the Church. We have been spiritually fed as we've listened to the counsel and testimonies of those who have participated in each session. We've been blessed to meet here in the magnificent conference center in peace and safety. We've had unprecedented coverage of the conference, reaching across the continents to people everywhere. Though we're physically far removed from many of you, we feel of your spirit. To our brethren who have been released at this conference, may I express the heartfelt thanks of the entire Church for your years of devoted service. Countless are those who have been blessed by your contributions to the work of the Lord. I express gratitude to the Tabernacle Choir and to the other choirs which participated in this conference. The music has been beautiful and has added greatly to the spirit we have felt at each session. I thank you for your prayers in my behalf and in behalf of all the general authorities 
and general officers of the Church. We are strengthened by them. May Heaven's blessings be with you. May your homes be filled with love and courtesy and with the Spirit of the Lord. May you constantly nourish your testimonies of the gospel, that they will be a protection to you against the buffetings of the adversary. Conference is now over. As we return to our homes, may we do so safely. May the spirit we felt here be and abide with us as we go about those things which occupy us each day. May we show increased kindness toward one another, and may we ever be found doing the work of the Lord. My brothers and sisters, may God bless you. May His promised peace be with you, now and always. I bid you farewell until we meet again in six months' time. In the name of our Savior, even Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, each day is a day of decision. President Thomas S. Monson has taught us that decisions determine destiny. The wise use of your freedom to make your own decisions is crucial to your spiritual growth now and for eternity. You are never too young to learn, never too old to change. Your yearnings to learn and change come from a divinely instilled striving for eternal progression. Each day brings opportunity for decisions for eternity. We are eternal beings, spirit children of heavenly parents. The Bible records that God created man in his own image. Male and female created he them. Recently, I heard a chorus of children sing the beloved song, I am a child of God. I wondered, why haven't I heard that song rendered more often by singing mothers or faithful fathers? Are we not all children of God? In truth, not one of us can ever stop being a child of God. As children of God, we should love Him with all our heart and soul, even more than we love our earthly parents. We should love our neighbors as brothers and sisters. No other commandments are greater than these. And we should ever revere the worth of human life through each of its many stages. Scripture teaches that the body and the spirit are the soul of man. As a dual being, each of you can thank God for His priceless gifts of your body and your spirit. My professional years as a medical doctor gave me a profound respect for the human body, created by God as a gift to you. It is absolutely amazing. Think of your eyes that see, ears that hear, 
and fingers to feel all the wondrous things around you. Your brain lets you learn, think, and reason. Your heart pumps tirelessly day and night, almost without your awareness. Your body protects itself. Pain comes as a warning that something is wrong and needs attention. Infectious illnesses strike from time to time, and when they do, antibodies are formed that increase your resistance to subsequent infection. Your body repairs itself. Cuts and bruises heal. Broken bones can become strong once again. I have cited but a tiny sample of the many amazing God-given qualities of your body. Even so, it seems that in every family, if not in every person, some physical conditions exist that require special care. A pattern for coping with such a challenge has been given by the Lord. He said, I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. For if they humble themselves and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Stellar spirits are often housed in imperfect bodies. The gift of such a body can actually strengthen a family as parents and siblings willingly build their lives around that child born with special needs. The aging process is also a gift from God, as is death. The eventual death of your mortal body is essential to God's great plan of happiness. Why? Because death will allow your spirit to return home to Him. From an eternal perspective, death is only premature for those who are not prepared to meet God. With your body being such a vital part of God's eternal plan, it is little wonder that the Apostle Paul described it as a temple of God. Each time you look in the mirror, see your body as your temple. That truth, refreshed gratefully each day, can positively influence your decisions about how you will care for your body and how you will use it. And those decisions will determine your destiny. How could this be? Because your body is the temple for your spirit, and how you use your body affects your spirit. Some of the decisions that will determine your eternal destiny include how will you choose to care for and use your body? What spiritual attributes will you choose to develop? Your spirit is an eternal entity. The Lord said to his prophet Abraham, 
Thou wast chosen before thou wast born. The Lord said something similar about Jeremiah and many others. He even said it about you. Your Heavenly Father has known you for a very long time. You, as his son or daughter, were chosen by him to come to earth at this precise time to be leaders in his great work on earth. You were chosen not for your bodily characteristics, but for your spiritual attributes, such as bravery, courage, integrity of heart, thirst for truth, hunger for wisdom, and a desire to serve others. You develop some of these attributes pre-mortally. Others you can develop here on earth as you persistently seek them. A pivotal spiritual attribute is that of self-mastery, the strength to place reason over appetite. Self-mastery builds a strong conscience, and your conscience determines your moral responses in difficult, tempting, and trying situations. Fasting helps your spirit to develop dominance over your physical appetites. Fasting also increases your access to Heaven's help as it intensifies your prayers. Why the need for self-mastery? God implanted strong appetites within us for nourishment and love, vital for the human family to be perpetuated. When we master our appetites within the bounds of God's laws, we can enjoy longer life, greater love, and consummate joy. It is not surprising, then, that most temptations to stray from God's plan of happiness come through the misuse of those essential God-given appetites. Controlling our appetites is not always easy. Not one of us manages them perfectly. Mistakes happen, errors are made, sins are committed. What can we do then? We can learn from them, and we can truly repent. We can change our behavior. Our very dire desires can change. How? There's only one way. True change, permanent change, can come only through the healing, cleansing, and enabling power of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. He loves you, each of you. He allows you to access His power as you keep His commandments eagerly, earnestly, and exactly. It's that simple and certain. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of change. A strong human spirit with control over appetites of the flesh is master over emotions and passions and not a slave to them. That kind of freedom is as vital to the spirit as oxygen is to the body. Freedom from self-slavery is true liberation. We are free to choose liberty and eternal life or to choose captivity, misery, and death. 
When we choose the loftier path toward liberty and eternal life, that path includes marriage. Latter-day Saints proclaim that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and that the family is central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of His children. We also know that gender is an essential characteristic of individual premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. Marriage between a man and a woman is fundamental to the Lord's doctrine and crucial to God's eternal plan. Marriage between a man and a woman is God's pattern for a fullness of life on earth and in heaven. God's marriage pattern cannot be abused, misunderstood, or misconstrued. Not if you want true joy. God's marriage pattern protects the sacred power of procreation and the joy of true marital intimacy. We know that Adam and Eve were married by God before they ever experienced the joy of uniting as husband and wife. In our day, civil governments have a vested interest in protecting marriage because strong families constitute the best way of providing for the health, education, welfare, and prosperity of rising generations. But civil governments are heavily influenced by social trends and secular philosophies as they write, rewrite, and enforce laws. Regardless of what civil legislation may be enacted, the doctrine of the Lord regarding marriage and morality cannot be changed. Remember, sin, even if legalized by man, is still sin in the eyes of God. All we are to emulate our Savior's kindness and compassion, while we are to value the rights and feelings of all of God's children, we cannot change His doctrine. It is not ours to change. His doctrine is ours to study understand, and uphold. The Savior's way of life is good. His way includes chastity before marriage and total fidelity within marriage. The Lord's way is the only way for us to experience enduring happiness. His way brings sustained comfort to our souls and perennial peace to our homes. And best of all, His way leads us home to Him and our Heavenly Father to eternal life and exaltation. This is the very essence of God's work and glory. My dear brothers and sisters, each day is a day of decision, and our decisions determine our destiny. One day each of us will stand before the Lord in judgment. We will each have a personal interview with Jesus Christ. We will account for decisions that we made about our bodies, our spiritual attributes, and how we honored God's pattern for marriage and family. That we may choose wisely each day's decisions for eternity is my earnest prayer in the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Our six-year-old grandson, Ollie, who affectionately calls me Poppy, had to get something from the car. 
His dad stood inside the house and, without Ollie being aware, unlocked the car door remotely as he approached it, then locked it again when he was done. Ollie then ran inside with a big smile. All the family asked him, how did you get the door to unlock for you, then to lock again? He just smiled. Our daughter, his mother, said, maybe it's like when Poppy does it. Maybe you have magic powers like him. When it happened a second time a few minutes later, his response to further questions about his new, newfound abilities was, it's amazing. I think it's because Poppy loves me and is one of my best friends, and he takes care of me. I have been blessed to know of truly miraculous things that have occurred in the lives of faithful saints throughout Africa, Papua New Guinea, Australia, New Zealand, and the islands of the Pacific. I agree with Ollie. I think it's because those faithful people feel the same way about Heavenly Father and the Saviour as Ollie feels about me. They love God as a close friend, and he takes care of them. Members of this church are entitled to, and many receive, a spiritual witness and make sacred covenants to follow the Lord. Yet despite that, some move towards him while others do not. In which category are you? God should be the centre of our universe, our literal focal point. Is he, or is he sometimes far from the thoughts and intents of our hearts? Notice, notice that it's not just the thoughts of our hearts that are important, but the intents. How do our behaviour and actions reflect the integrity of our intents? Our son Ben, when he was 16 and speaking in state conference, asked the question, how would you feel if someone promised you something every week and never kept the promise? He continued, do we take seriously the promise we make when we partake of the sacrament and covenant to keep his commandments and always remember him? The Lord gives us ways to help remember him and his sustaining powers. One way is through that common lot we all share, adversity. As I look back at the trials I've faced, it's clear that they've resulted in my growth, understanding and empathy. They've drawn me closer to my Heavenly Father and His Son. With experiences and refining engraved into my heart, his guidance, his guidance and instruction are essential. He helped the faithful brother of Jared by solving one of his two challenges when he told him how to get fresh air into the barges that had been faithfully built. But pointedly, the Lord not only left temporarily unsolved the challenge of how to provide light, but he then made it clear that he, the Lord, would allow the buffetings and trials that necessitated its solving. He it would be who would send forth the winds, the rains and the floods. Why would he do that? And why does he warn any of us to remove ourselves from a source of danger when he could simply stop the danger from happening? President Wilford Woodruff told the story of being spiritually warned to move the carriage that he, his wife and child slept in, only to discover that a whirlwind shortly thereafter uprooted a large tree and dropped it exactly where the carriage had previously stood. In both of these instances, the weather could have been adjusted to eliminate the dangers. But here is the point. Rather than solve the problem himself, 
the Lord wants us to develop the faith that will help us rely upon him in solving our problems and trust him. Then we can feel his love more constantly, more powerfully, more clearly and more personally. We become united with him and we can become like him. For us to be like him is his goal. In fact, it is his glory as well as his work. A young boy was trying to smooth out the dirt area behind his house so he could play there with his cars. There was a large rock obstructing his work. The boy pushed and pulled with all his might, but no matter how hard he tried, the rock wouldn't budge. His father watched for a while, then came to his son and said, you need to use all your strength to move a rock this large. The boy responded, I have used all my strength. His father corrected him, no, you haven't. You haven't had my help yet. They then bent down together and moved the rock easily. The father of my friend, Vibarome, Papua New Guinea's first state president, was also taught that he could turn to his father in heaven in times of need. He and his fellow villagers could survive only through the crops they grew. One day he lit a fire to clear his portion of the village farmland for planting. However, it had been preceded by a long, hot period and the vegetation was very dry. So his fire became of the President Monson variety, as our prophet himself described at the last general conference. It began to spread to the grassland and bushes, and in the words of his son, a big monster of fire resulted. He feared for his fellow villagers and the possible loss of their crops. If they were destroyed, he would be subject to village justice. Being unable to extinguish the fire, he then remembered the Lord. I now quote from his son, my friend. He knelt on the hill in the bushes and started to pray to Heavenly Father to stop the fire. Suddenly there appeared a big black cloud above where he was praying and it rained so hard, but only where the fire was burning. When he looked around, there was clear sky everywhere except where the flames burnt. He couldn't believe the Lord would answer a simple man like him and he again knelt down and cried like a child. He said it was the sweetest feeling. Our Saviour wants us to really love him to the point that we want to align our will with his. We can then feel his love and know his glory. Then he can bless us as he wants to. This happened to Nephi the son of Helaman who reached the stage where the Lord trusted him implicitly and because of that was able to bless him with all that he asked. In Life of Pi, the fictional book by Jan Martel, the hero voices his feelings about Christ. I couldn't get him out of my head, still can't. I spent three solid days thinking about him. The more he bothered me, the less I could forget him. And the more I learned about him, the less I wanted to leave him. That's exactly how I feel about the Saviour. He is always near, especially in sacred places and in times of need. And sometimes when I least expect, 
I feel almost like he taps me on the shoulder to let me know he loves me. I can return that love in my own imperfect way by giving him my heart. Just a few months ago, I sat with Elder Holland as he assigned missionaries to their missions. As we left, he waited for me. And as we walked, he draped his arm around my shoulder. I commented to him on his doing the same thing once before in Australia. He said, that's because I love you. And I knew that was true. I believe that if we could have the privilege of walking physically with the Saviour, that we would feel his arm draped over our shoulder just like that. Like the disciples heading towards Emmaus, our hearts would burn within us. This is his message, come and see. It is personal, inviting and embracing in its invitation to walk with his arm around our shoulders. May we all feel as confident as Enos, as reflected in the last verse of his short but profound book. I rejoice in the day when my mortal shall put on immortality and shall stand before him. Then shall I see his face with pleasure, and he will say unto me, Come unto me, ye blessed. There is a place prepared for you in the mansions of my Father. Because of the multiplicity of experiences and the power with which the Spirit has witnessed to me, I testify with absolute surety that God lives. I feel his love. It is the sweetest feeling. May we do what is needed to align our will with his and truly love him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. When I was eight, two cousins and I were sent to a nearby town to get groceries for the next 15 days. Looking back, I am amazed at how much confidence my grandmother and my aunt and uncle had in us. The morning skies were bright and shiny as we departed in our small caravan of three horses. In the middle of the prairie, we had a brilliant idea that we should dismount and play marbles. So we did, for a long time. We were so absorbed in our game that we did not see the signs of the times above our heads as dark clouds covered the sky. By the time we realized what was happening, we didn't even have time to dismount our horses or um, the heavy rain was hitting us so hard and the hail was hitting our faces that we could not think of other things but to unsaddle our horses, take covers under the saddle blanket. Horseless, wet, and cold, we continue our journey, now trying to move as fast as we could. As we approached our destination, we saw that the wide street that entered the town had flooded and was like a river heading toward us. Now our only choice was to drop our covers and climb to the barbed wire fence that surrounded the town. It was late at night when, tired and sore and soaked, we sought shelter in the first home we saw entering the town. The good family there dried us off, fed us delicious bean burritos, and then put us to bed in a room of our own. 
Soon we discovered that the room had a flat dirt floor. So we had another brilliant idea. We drew a circle in the floor and continued our marble game until we collapsed to the floor and slip. As children, we were just thinking about ourselves. We never thought about the loved ones who were desperately searching for us back home. If we had, we would never have delayed our journey in such a useless pursuit. And if we had been wiser, we would have looked at the sky, spotted the clouds forming, and accelerated our pace to stay ahead of the storm. Now that I have a little more experience, I always remind myself, don't forget to look up. My experience with my cousins taught me to pay attention to the signs of our times. We live in the stormy, perilous days that Paul described. Man shall be lovers of their own selves, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, false accusers, incontinent, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Speaking of this time, Elder Dalen H. Oak said, We need to make both temporal and spiritual preparation. Most likely to be neglected, the one, it's the less visible and more difficult, the spiritual. In other words, don't neglect to look up. Given the urgent need for spiritual preparation in a time of such a peril, I want to extend a word of warning about one very strong sign of the times. My professional life put me on the forefront of technology, so I recognize the value it has, especially in communication. So much information of man is now at our fingertips, but the Internet is also full of much that is filthy and misleading. Technology has augmented our freedom of speech, but it also gives an unqualified blogger false credibility based on the number of viewers. This is why now, more than ever, we must remember this eternal principle. By their fruits, you should know them. In particular, I caution you not to view filthy images or give your attention to the false accusers of Christ and the prophet Joseph Smith. Both actions create the same effect, the loss of the Holy Ghost and His protecting, sustaining power. Vice and happiness always follow. My dear brothers and sisters, if you ever come across anything that causes you to question your testimony of the gospel, I plead with you to look up. Look to the source of all wisdom and truth. Nourish your faith and testimony with the Word of God. There are those in the world who seek to undermine your faith by mixing lies with half-truths. This is why it is absolutely critical that you remain constant, worthy of the Spirit. The companionship of the Holy Ghost it's not just a pleasant convenience. It is essential to your spiritual survival. If you will not treasure up the words of Christ and listen closely to the promptings of the Spirit, you will be deceived. We must do these things. 
Jesus Christ, who was perfect and just as made, who admitted that he was not, were both killed by the false accusers who could not accept their testimony. How can we know that their testimony is true, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Joseph Smith is a true prophet? By their fruits, you should know them. Can good fruit grow from a bad tree? I know for myself that my Redeemer has forgiven my sins and freed me of my personal yoke, bringing me to a state of happiness that I did not know existed. And I know for myself that Joseph Smith was a prophet because I have applied the simple promise in the Book of Mormon, Ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ. In simple words, look up. There are some, some whom I suggest that you must have physical evidence in order to believe in the resurrection of Christ or the veracity of His restored gospel. To them, I quote the words of Alma to Corihor, who was trying to persuade others not to believe. Thou hast had signs enough. Will you tempt your God? Will you say, show unto me a sign when you have the testimony of all these, thy brethren, and also all the holy prophets? The scriptures are laid before thee. You and I are living evidence of the redemption of the Savior. We are living evidence of the ministry of the prophet Joseph and the faithfulness of those early saints who remained strong in their testimony. The Church of Jesus Christ has now expanded all over the world and is growing like never before. Embrace us in the times of Christ by humble people who do not need to see and touch to believe. No one knows when the Lord will come again, but the perilous times are now upon us. Today is a time to look to the source of truth and ensure that our testimonies are strong. Now, returning to my account with my dear cousins, them and I woke in the morning to a bright sun and a beautiful sky. A man knocked on the door looking for the three lost boys. He put us in horses, and we started back home to uh, the same prairie. I will never forget what we saw on our way home. A multitude of people who had been searching for us throughout the night, their tractors and trucks stuck in the mud. They had found a saddle here and a horse there, and when they saw us returning home, I could feel their relief and their love. At the entrance to town, many people were waiting for us. And in the front of them all were my loving grandmother and my uncle and aunt. They embraced us and cried over joy that they had found their lost children. What a great reminder this is to me, that our loving Heavenly Father is mindful of us. He is anxiously waiting our return home. Yes, there are signs of storms forming all around us. Let us look up and prepare ourselves. There is safety in a strong testimony. Let us cherish and strengthen our testimonies every day. I know 
we can live together as families for eternity. That our loving Heavenly Father is awaiting for us, His children, with His arms extended. I know that Jesus Christ, our rescuer, lives. And as with Peter, no flesh and blood has revealed it to me, but my Father who is in heaven. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. My father could remember the very day, even the very hour, that his family, father, mother, and four children, left the church, many never to return again in this life. He was 13 years old, a deacon, and in those days families attended Sunday school in the morning and then sacrament meeting in the afternoon. On a beautiful spring day, after returning from Sunday morning worship services and having a midday family meal together, his mother turned to his father and asked simply, Well, dear, do you think we should go to sacrament meeting this afternoon, or should we take the family for a ride in the country? The idea that there was an option to sacrament meeting had never even occurred to my father, but he and his three teenage siblings all sat up and paid careful attention. That Sunday afternoon ride in the country was probably an enjoyable family activity, but that small decision became the start of a new direction which ultimately led his family away from the Church with its safety, security, and blessings and onto a different path. As a lesson to those of our day who might be tempted to choose a different path, the Book of Mormon prophet Lehi shared a vision with his family where he saw numberless concourses of people, many of whom were pressing forward that they might obtain the path which led under the tree by which he stood. And they did come forth and commence in the path which led to the tree, and there arose a mist of darkness, insomuch that they who had commenced in the path did lose their way, that they wandered off and were lost. Lehi then saw a second group that was pressing forward, and they came forth and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron, and they did press forward through the mist of darkness, clinging to the rod of iron, even until they did come forth and partake of the fruit of the tree. Unfortunately, after they had partaken of the fruit of the tree, they did cast their eyes about as if they were ashamed because of those in a great and spacious building that were in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers towards those who had come and were partaking of the fruit. These people then fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. They were unable or perhaps unwilling to endure to the end. There was, however, a third group that was not only successful in reaching the tree of life, they afterwards did not fall away. Of these, the scriptures say that they pressed forward, continually holding fast to the rod of iron until they came forth and fell down and partook of the fruit of the tree. The rod of iron represented for this group of people the only safety and security that they could find, and they held fast continually. They refused to let go, even for something as simple as a Sunday afternoon ride in the country. About this group of people, Elder David A. Bednar has taught, the key phrase in this, in this verse is continually holding fast to the rod of iron. Perhaps this third group of people consistently read and studied and searched the words of Christ. This is the group that you and I should strive to join. Close quote. 
Those of us who are members of God's Church today have made covenants to follow Jesus Christ and to obey God's commandments. At baptism, we covenanted to stand as a witness of the Savior, to succor the weak and the needy, to keep the commandments of God, and to repent as needed, for as the Apostle Paul taught, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each week we have the opportunity to attend a sacrament meeting where we can renew these covenants by partaking of the bread and water of the sacrament ordinance. This simple act allows us to once again pledge ourselves to follow Jesus Christ and to repent when we do fall short. God's promise to us in return is His Spirit as a guide and protection. From Preach My Gospel, our missionaries teach that revelation and testimony come when we attend our Sunday church meetings. Quote, As we attend church services and worship together, we strengthen each other. We are renewed by our association with friends and family. Our faith is strengthened as we study the scriptures and learn more about the restored gospel. Close quote. One might ask why we have three separate meetings on Sunday and why the need for each. Let's briefly look at these three meetings. Sacrament meeting provides the opportunity to participate in the ordinance of the sacrament. We renew our covenants, receive an increased measure of the Spirit, and have the additional blessing of being instructed and edified by the Holy Ghost. Sunday school allows us to teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom, that all might be edified and rejoice together. Great power and personal peace come as we understand the doctrines of the restored gospel. Priesthood meetings are a time for men and young men to learn their duty and to be instructed more perfectly, and Relief Society meeting provides the women of the Church an opportunity to increase their faith, strengthen their families and homes, and help those in need. Likewise, our young women and children have their own meetings and classes where they are taught the gospel as they prepare for important responsibilities that will come to them. In each of these unique but connected meetings, we learn the doctrine, feel the Spirit, and serve one another. While there may be exceptions due to distance, travel costs, or health, we should strive to attend all of our Sunday meetings. I promise that blessings of great joy and peace will come from worship during our three-hour Sunday meeting schedule. Our family has committed to always attend all of our Sunday meetings. We have found that this strengthens our faith, deepens our understanding of the gospel, and we have learned that we feel good about our decision to attend our Church meetings, especially as we return to our home and continue to observe the Sabbath. We even attend all of our Sunday meetings when we are on vacation or traveling. One of our daughters recently wrote to say that she had attended church in a city where she was traveling and then added, Yes, Dad, I did attend all three of the Sunday meetings. We know that she was blessed for this righteous decision. We each have many choices to make as to how we observe the Sabbath day. There will always be some good activity that can and should be sacrificed for the better choice of church meeting attendance. This is, in fact, one of the ways that the adversary cheateth our souls and leadeth us carefully away. He uses good activities as substitutes for better or even best activities. 
Continually holding fast to the rod means that we attend all of our Sunday meetings, sacrament meetings, Sunday school, and priesthood or Relief Society meetings. Our children and youth attend their respective meetings in primary, young men and young women. We should never pick or choose which meetings we attend. We simply hold fast to the Word of God by worshiping and attending all of the Sabbath meetings that are offered. Continually holding fast to the rod means that we strive to keep all of God's commandments, to have daily personal and family prayer, and to study the scriptures daily. Continually holding fast is part of the doctrine of Christ as taught in the Book of Mormon. We exercise faith in Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, and change our hearts, then follow Him down into the waters of baptism and receive the confirming gift of the Holy Ghost which serves as a guide and comforter, and then, as Nephi taught, we press forward, feasting on the words of Christ until the very end of our lives. My brothers and sisters, we are a covenant people. We willingly make and keep covenants, and the promised blessing is that we will receive all that the Father hath. As we continually hold fast to the rod by keeping our covenants, We will be strengthened to resist the temptations and perils of the world. We will be able to navigate this mortal life with all of its challenges until we actually reach the tree with the fruit most precious and most desirable above all other. My father was fortunate to marry a good woman who encouraged him to come back to the Church of his youth and begin again to progress along the path. Their faithful lives have blessed all of their children, the next generation of grandchildren, and now great-grandchildren. Just as a simple decision to attend or not attend one of their Sabbath day worship meetings made a significant difference in the lives of my grandparents' family, our everyday decisions will impact our lives in significant ways. A seemingly small decision, such as whether or not to attend a sacrament meeting, can have far-reaching, even eternal consequences. May we choose to be diligent and gain the great blessings and protections that come from gathering together and keeping covenants. May we continually hold fast to the iron rod that leads to the presence of our Heavenly Father is my prayer in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We are grateful beyond any measure of expression for teachers throughout the Church. We love you and have great confidence in you. You are one of the great miracles of the restored gospel. There is indeed a secret to becoming a successful gospel teacher, to teaching with the power and authority of God. I use the word secret because the principles upon which a teacher's success rests can be understood only by those who have a testimony of what took place on the morning of a beautiful, clear day early in the spring of 1820. In response to a 14-year-old boy's humble prayer, the heavens were opened. God, the Eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, appeared and spoke to the Prophet Joseph Smith. The long-awaited restitution of all things had begun. And the principle of revelation was everlastingly established in our dispensation. Joseph's message and our message to the world can be summarized in two words, 
God speaks. He spoke anciently, he spoke to Joseph, and he will speak to you. This is what sets you apart from all other teachers in the world. This is why you cannot fail. You have been called by the spirit of prophecy and revelation and have been set apart by priesthood authority. What does this mean? First, it means that you are on the Lord's errand. You are His agent, and you are authorized and commissioned to represent Him and to act on His behalf. As His agent, you are entitled to His help. You must ask yourself, what would the Savior say if He were teaching my class today, and how would He say it? You must then do likewise. This responsibility may cause some to feel inadequate or even somewhat fearful. The pathway is not difficult. The Lord has provided the way for every worthy Latter-day Saint to teach in the Savior's way. Second, you are called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must not teach your own ideas or philosophy, even mingled with scriptures. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and it is only through the gospel that we are saved. Third, you are commanded to teach the principles of the gospel as they are found in the standard works of the Church, to teach the words of the modern-day apostles and prophets, and to teach that which is taught you by the Holy Ghost. So where do we begin? Our first and foremost responsibility is to live so that we can have the Holy Ghost as our guide and companion. When Hiram Smith sought to become engaged in this Latter-day work, the Lord said, Behold, this is your work, to keep my commandments, yea, with all your might, mind, and strength. This is the starting point. The counsel provided by the Lord to Hiram is the same counsel He has provided to the saints in every age. Speaking to teachers today, the First Presidency stated, The most important part of your service will be your own daily spiritual preparation, including prayer, scripture study, and obedience to the commandments. We encourage you to dedicate yourself to living the gospel with greater purpose than ever before. It is significant that the First Presidency did not say that the most important part of your service is to prepare your lesson well or to master various teaching techniques. Of course, you must diligently prepare for each lesson and strive to learn how you can teach so as to help your students exercise their agency and allow the gospel to enter into their hearts. But the first and foremost and most important part of your service is your personal spiritual preparation. As you follow this counsel, the First Presidency has promised, the Holy Ghost will help you to know what to do. Your own testimony of the gospel will grow, your conversion will be deepened, and you will be strengthened to meet the challenges of life." What greater blessings could a teacher desire? Next. The Lord has commanded that before we seek to declare His word, we must seek to obtain it. You must become men and women of sound understanding by diligently 
searching the scriptures and by treasuring them up in your hearts. Then as you ask for the Lord's help, he will bless you with his spirit and his word. You will have the power of God under the convincing of men. Paul tells us that the gospel comes to men in two ways, in word and in power. The word of the gospel is written in the scriptures, and we can obtain the word by diligently searching. The power of the gospel comes into the lives of those who so live that the Holy Ghost is their companion and who follow the promptings they receive. Some focus their attention only on obtaining the word, and they become experts in delivering information. Others neglect their preparation and hope that the Lord in His goodness will somehow help them get through the class period. You cannot expect the Spirit to help you remember the scriptures and principles you have not studied or considered. In order to successfully teach the gospel, you must have both the word and the power of the gospel in your life. Alma understood these principles when he described the sons of Mosiah and how they taught with the power and authority of God. He said, They were men of sound understanding, and they had searched the scriptures diligently that they might know the word of God. But this is not all. They had given themselves to much prayer and fasting. Therefore, they had the spirit of revelation. Next, you must learn to listen. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland taught this principle to missionaries. I will quote from Elder Holland's remarks, but have taken the liberty of replacing the terms missionaries and investigators with the terms teachers and students, respectively. Quote, Second only to the responsibility teachers have to listen to the Spirit is the responsibility they have to listen to the student. If we'll listen with spiritual ears, our students will tell us what they need to hear. Elder Holland continued, quote, The fact is that teachers are still too focused on delivering comfortable, repetitious lesson content rather than focusing on their students as individuals. Close quote. After you have prepared yourself and your lesson to the very best of your ability, you must be willing to let go. When the quiet promptings of the Holy Ghost come, you must have the courage to set aside your outlines and your notes and go where those promptings take you. When you do this, the lesson you deliver is no longer your lesson, but it becomes the Savior's lesson. As you dedicate yourself to living the gospel with greater purpose than ever before and search the scriptures, treasuring them up in your heart, the same Holy Ghost who revealed these words to apostles and prophets anciently will testify to you of their truthfulness. In essence, the Holy Ghost will reveal them anew to you. When this happens, the words that you read are no longer only the words of Nephi or Paul or Alma, but they become your words. Then, as you teach, the Holy Ghost will be able to bring all things to your remembrance. Indeed, it shall be given you in the very hour, yea, in the very moment, what ye shall say. When this happens, you will find yourself saying something that you did not plan to say. Then 
If you will pay attention, you will learn something from the things that you say when you teach. President Marion G. Romney said, quote, I always know when I am speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost because I always learn something from what I have said. Close quote. Remember, a teacher is also a student. Finally, you must stand as an independent witness of the things you teach and not just be an echo of the words in a manual or the thoughts of others. As you feast upon the words of Christ and strive to live the gospel with greater purpose than ever before, the Holy Ghost will manifest unto you that the things you are teaching are true. This is the spirit of revelation, and this same spirit will carry your message into the hearts of those who desire and are willing to receive it. Let us now end where we started, in the sacred grove. Because of what took place on that beautiful spring morning not so long ago, you are entitled to teach with the power and authority of God. Of this I bear my solemn and independent witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As the children in sacrament meeting happily sang the primary song, Love is Spoken Here, everyone smiled with approval. A courageous mother raising five children listened attentively to the second verse. Mine is a home where every hour is blessed by the strength of priesthood power. Sadly, she thought, my children have never known such a home. My message to this faithful woman and to all is that we can live every hour blessed by the strength of priesthood power, whatever our circumstance. We sometimes overly associate the power of the priesthood with men in the Church. The priesthood is the power and authority of God given for the salvation and blessing of all men, women, and children. A man may open the drapes so the warm sunlight comes into the room, but the man does not own the sun or the light or the warmth it brings. The blessings of the priesthood are infinitely greater than the one who is asked to administer the gift. To receive the blessings, power, and promises of the priesthood in this life and the next is one of the great opportunities and responsibilities of mortality. As we are worthy, the ordinances of the priesthood enrich our lives on earth and prepare us for the magnificent promises of the world ahead. The Lord said, in the ordinances, the power of godliness is manifest. There are special blessings from God for every worthy person who is baptized, receives the Holy Ghost, and regularly partakes of the sacrament. The temple brings added light and strength along with the promise of eternal life. All of the ordinances invite us to increase our faith in Jesus Christ and to make and keep covenants with God. As we keep these sacred covenants, we receive priesthood power and blessings. Do we not feel this power of the priesthood in our own lives and see it among the covenant-keeping members of the Church? 
We see it in new converts as they step from the waters of baptism, feeling forgiven and clean. We see our children and youth more sensitive to the promptings and guidance of the Holy Ghost. We see the ordinances of the temple becoming a beacon of strength and light for righteous men and women across the world. This past month, I watched a young couple draw enormous strength from the sealing promises of the temple as their precious baby boy was born but lived only one week. Through the ordinances of the priesthood, this young couple and all of us receive comfort, strength, protection, peace, and eternal promises. Some may sincerely ask the question, if the power and blessings of the priesthood are available to all, why are the ordinances of the priesthood administered by men? When an angel asked Nephi, Knowest thou the condescension of God? Nephi answered honestly, I know that he loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. When we speak of the priesthood, there are many things we do know. We know that God loves all his children and is no respecter of persons. He denieth none that come unto him, male or female, and all are alike unto God. As surely as we know that God's love is alike for His sons and daughters, we also know that He did not create men and women exactly the same. We know that gender is an essential characteristic of both mortal and eternal identity and purpose. Sacred responsibilities are given to each gender. We know that from the beginning the Lord established how His priesthood would be administered. The priesthood was first given to Adam. Noah, Abraham, and Moses all administered priesthood ordinances. Jesus Christ is a great high priest. He called apostles. Ye have not chosen me, He said, but I have chosen you and ordained you. In our day, John the Baptist, Peter, James and John restored the priesthood to the earth through the prophet Joseph Smith. This is the way our Father in heaven has administered His priesthood. We know that the power of the holy priesthood does not work independently of faith, the Holy Ghost, and spiritual gifts. The Scriptures caution, deny not the gifts of God, for they are many. And there are different ways that these gifts are administered, but it is the same God who worketh them all. We know that worthiness is central to performing and receiving priesthood ordinances. Sister Linda K. Burton has said, Righteousness is a qualifier to invite priesthood power into our lives. For example, Consider the plague of pornography sweeping across the world. It is bondage, just as Elder Cook just said. The Lord's standard of worthiness gives no allowance for pornography for those officiating in the ordinances of the priesthood. The Savior said, Repent of your secret abominations. The light of the body is the eye. 
If thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. For whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Unworthily administering or passing the sacrament, blessing the sick, are participating in other priesthood ordinances is, as Elder David A. Bednar has said, taking the name of God in vain. If one is unworthy, he should withdraw from officiating in priesthood ordinances and prayerfully approach his bishop as a first step in repenting and returning to the commandments. Another thing we know is that there is an abundance of priesthood blessings in families where a righteous mother and father are united in guiding their children. But we also know that God eagerly provides these same blessings to those in many other situations. A mother, carrying the weight of providing both spiritually and temporally for her family, sensitively explained that calling her home teachers to bless one of her children requires her humility. But she insightfully added that it requires no more humility than that of her home teachers as they prepare to bless her child. We know that the keys of the priesthood, held by members of the First Presidency and Quorum of Twelve Apostles, direct the work of the Lord upon the earth. Specific priesthood keys are conferred upon stake presidents and bishops for their geographic responsibilities, and they call men and women by revelation who are sustained and set apart to exercise delegated authority to teach and administer. While there are many things we do know about the priesthood, seeing through the lens of mortality does not always give us a complete understanding of the workings of God. But his gentle reminder, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, reassures us that with time and eternal perspective we will see things as they really are and understand his perfect love. We all willingly serve. Sometimes we feel underwhelmed with our calling and wish we were asked to do more. Other times we are grateful when it is time for our release. We do not determine the callings we receive. I learned this lesson early in my marriage. Kathy and I were living in Florida. One Sunday, a counselor in the stake presidency explained to me that they felt impressed to call Kathy as an early morning seminary teacher. How will we do it, I ask. We have small children. Seminary begins at 5 a.m., and I am the Ward Young Men President. The counselor smiled and said, It'll be okay, Brother Anderson. We will call her, and we will release you. <laughs> and that is what happened. Sincerely asking for and listening to the thoughts and concerns voiced by women is vital in life, in marriage, and in building the kingdom of God. Twenty years ago, in General Conference, Elder M. Russell Ballard related a conversation he had with the General President of the Relief Society. 
There was a question raised about strengthening the worthiness of youth preparing to serve missions. Sister Elaine Jack said with a smile, You know, Elder Boward, the women of the Church may have some good suggestions if they are asked. After all, we are their mothers. President Thomas S. Monson has a lifelong history of asking for and responding to the concerns of women. The woman who has influenced him the most is Sister Frances Monson. We miss her very much. Also, just this past Thursday, President Monson reminded the general authorities how much he learned as a bishop from the 84 widows of his ward. They greatly influenced his service and his entire life. Not surprisingly, before President Monson's prayerful decision about the age change for missionary service, there were many discussions with the Relief Society, Young Women, and Primary General Presidencies. Bishops, as you follow the example of President Monson, you will feel even more abundantly the guiding hand of the Lord blessing your sacred work. We lived in Brazil for several years. Soon after arriving, I met Adelson Parrella, who was serving as a 70, and his brother Adilson, who was serving in our stake presidency. Later, I met their brother Adalton, serving as a stake president in Florianopolis, and another brother Adelmo, serving as a bishop. I was impressed by the faith of these brothers, and I asked about their parents. The family was baptized in Santos, Brazil, 42 years ago. Agilson Pajala said, At first, Father seemed very excited about joining the Church. However, he soon became less active and asked our mother not to attend Church. Agilson told me that his mother sewed clothing for the neighbors to pay for her children's bus fare to Church. The four little boys walked together over a mile to another town, boarded the bus for 45 minutes, and then walked another 20 minutes to the chapel. Although unable to go to church with her children, Sister Parella read the scriptures with her sons and daughters, taught them the gospel, and prayed with them. Their humble home was filled with the rich blessings of priesthood power. The little boys grew up, served missions, were educated, and married in the temple. The blessings of the priesthood filled their homes. Years later, as a single sister, Vani Parella entered the temple for her own endowment and later still served three missions in Brazil. Now 84 years old, her faith continues to bless the generations that have followed her. The power of God's holy priesthood is found in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I testify as you worthily participate in the ordinances of the priesthood. The Lord will give you greater strength, peace, and eternal perspective. Whatever your situation, your home will be blessed by the strength of priesthood power, and those close to you will more fully desire these blessings for themselves. 
as men and women, sisters and brothers, sons and daughters of God, we move forward together. This is our opportunity, our responsibility, and our blessing. This is our destiny, to prepare the kingdom of God for the return of the Savior. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.